Um, this morning's gospel reading comes from Mark 8, um, the 27th through the 30th verses. From, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his, his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anyone about him. Up to this moment, Peter was having a really good day. <laughs> he was having a good day because he answered a question in a way that was coming from his heart. It was calling things as he saw them. And Jesus knew that he got it right, and he knew it as well. In other versions of this story, in other Gospels, this is the moment when uh, Peter's rewarded and acknowledged with the, uh, the, the knowledge that one day the church will be built upon his, his work and his efforts on Jesus' behalf. Peter's a prophet at that moment, a successful prophet at that moment, and yet, very quickly, things turn the other way, because right after that, if you read on, Jesus begins to talk about his suffering that he's going to face, his death, his resurrection, and Peter pulls him aside and pretty much tells him, you need to stop this negativity, this bad talk. And then <laughs> Jesus, instead of responding to that, turns back to him and says, you've got to stop talking about things you don't understand yet. And then he uses that famous line, get behind me, Satan. So Peter goes from a a high to a low in just a few verses in the Gospel of Mark. These two passages that I chose for today um, are about prophets, and I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a prophet in this world, and if we're able uh, in this day and age to see prophets, to see ourselves, our churches, as prophets. A little bit of background about what I do. Um, I'm, I'm a United Methodist clergy person. I have been for so, as long as you have been, Mark. Uh, and we were adding up years, and it's like, yeah, we graduated from seminary about the same time. And uh, I'm doing an extension ministry appointment now where I'm serving as the Love Your Neighbor Coalition coordinator. And so you know what it is. The Love Your Neighbor Coalition is a, an organization that's 12 different caucus groups within and outside, just outside of the United Methodist Church, official and unofficial caucus groups that are working together on the intersectionality of concerns and justice issues that they share, on the core values that they share together about where they hope our denomination will be heading in the future, and we're working together to try to make those changes reality now. Some might say we're about the work of, of, of being prophets, as in a sense, to the United Methodist Church. Um, some would say we're uh, annoying. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. Sometimes prophets can be annoying. Um, I asked my staff, uh, the staff that I work with from the Methodist Federation for Social Action, one of the, the caucus partners, what they thought a prophet was. And these folks are some pretty dedicated, inspiring people. 
And here's what they told me. They said, a prophet is someone who doesn't care about what others think about them. They're willing to talk about hard truths. They're foreseers, visionaries. They speak out and they cast a vision for a more just way of being, for change. Then I decided I needed to do something a little scholarly, so I looked up the word, and it comes from the word, prophet comes from the word, prophetes, which interestingly enough can be translated as prophet or poet. And I kind of love the fact that poet can become, come from the same word as prophet, as I think many prophets or poets have had a prophetic heart, at least the ones that have inspired me. I also looked up the official definitions and they were a person gifted in expositing, proclaiming divine truth. Someone who's an interpreter or foreteller of the divine. Now in, in Christianity, many of us tend to focus on the futuristic part of prophets, that they're telling the future. And, and in Christianity in particular, we tend to talk about prophets as being uh, a person who, well, is, is referring to Jesus and his life, and refer, or referring to his death and resurrection, or referring to the end times, um, as if the prophet were speaking about something well beyond their own lifetime. However, it skips over one of the primary functions of a prophet. A prophet primarily was meant to speak to their contemporaries, the people of their day, and to help them to see that God had a different way, that they ought to be in the world together. Well, I came up, and I want you to kind of think about this one as a def with a definition, a working definition of how I would define a prophet, and this is the perspective I'm coming from this morning, in light of these scriptures, in light of the work that I do. Someone, anyone, who is actively seeking God's presence, will, and purpose in their life and the world around them, and they are also willing to speak up about what God's presence has helped them to realize. That's the working definition I kind of have for prophet, and I like that because suddenly I realize that I've had an awful lot of prophets in my life, and I have a sneaky feeling you have probably had some too. You all have mentioned Alice Cromwell many times to me over the past week. She was a prophet, a prophetess in your life. My mom was probably the first real prophet who I experienced in my life. My mother was um, an environmentalist before envir environmentalism was trendy. Um, she actually organized service clubs in Ocean City, New Jersey, where I grew up, to start recycling paper and glass um, as a community. She saw that we were becoming overdeveloped as a seashore resort off the coast of New Jersey, that we were being overdeveloped by the development of real estate, and so she got involved and city council um, would show up at meetings and when they were trying to develop lands that really needed to be protected in the community, and then realized, well, you know, I could do more if I was on the city council. And so she was the first woman elected to the city council where she stayed for 14 years. My mother, if you called her a politician, would pull you up short and tell you, I am not a politician, I'm a public servant. And she meant it. And my mom was also the type of person who would pull me up short. 
and tell me when I was doing things that weren't very kind in the world. And one of the things she used to always say was, do good, do good. Well, when I was 14, I began to, to realize that some things didn't make sense in my family. My brothers and sisters were all two years apart. And I was born five years later. I was the youngest of four. And so I started to press my mother a little bit at the age of 14 and say, you know, Mom, uh, something happened. Um, what? <laughs> I knew I was kind of in oops. And so I, um, I was trying to get her to admit it. And my mother would never admit it, not till the day she died. Would she ever say, you were an accident, Steve? She said, you're God's child. We left it up to God whether we would have more children. You were God's child. And so when I decided um, to follow this calling that was burning on my heart in later years, um, and I called my parents, I said, I'm calling to tell you something very important about what I'm about to do with my life. And I said, Mom, it's your fault. <laughs> I want to stick with when I was 14 because that was a pivotal year for me. I began to work and I worked at a mid-sized family-owned grocery store and my, um, uh, my boss was, this, my direct boss was the son of one of the owners. I didn't know about nepotism yet, but I do now. Um, and my, the boss, Freddie, the two bosses, Freddie and Charlie Palermo, the Palermos, um, so they had us call them by their first names because they didn't know who you were talking to if you said Mr. Palermo. Were, um, were good people for the most part, uh, but they were really all about their business. And one day as a stock clerk, that's what my job was, I was up front near the registers uh, stocking some shelves. And one of the checkout clerks, uh, a, a young lady who was working the register, um, who wasn't, she wasn't known as the nicest person, but she was also dating my boss, the son of the owner, one of the owners, Freddie. Uh, his name was Steve as well. And um, uh, she looked outside the front window and she saw a young boy, and I think he was probably five or six years old, leaning against her bicycle, which was in the bicycle rack. And suddenly she became enraged and she started running towards the door and I heard things coming out of her mouth that I will not repeat. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing and I saw who she was heading towards, so I ran after her. Um, I got outside and she was spewing very harsh racial epitaphs at this little child. And I, I was a few steps behind, I ran up before, she, I thought she was gonna grab the kid and shake him or something. And I ran up behind her, I kind of spun her around um, I'm not proud of this, I slapped her. And I said, don't you ever say that to a child. Well, suddenly the reality of what I had just done came crashing down as she looked at me and she said, you know you're fired, Claude. And she ran back in and headed towards the office. I apologized to the little boy for what she had said. And I said, no one should ever say that to you or anyone. And I encouraged him to get home before she came back. Um, and. Then I went back in and I went back to work. I went back to work waiting for the inevitable, which came just a few moments later, and it was over the loudspeaker. Steve Klon, report to the office. So I did. And Freddie was sitting there at his desk when I got there. And I said, Mr. Palermo, you need something? <laughs> and he said, what did you do? Did you slap her? 
And I said, yeah, I did. And I'm sorry about that. And I'd be happy to apologize to her for that. And please know that that's a level of violence that I wouldn't tolerate in my own life today. But as a 14-year-old back then, that's where I was. And I said, before, I knew he, the next line out of his mouth was going to be, you know, I have to let you go. But before he could say that, I said, Freddie, you know I just did you a favor? Now, he was the one in shock. And he said, and what's that? I said, more than half of your customers here are African-American. I lived a block away this way. On the other side of the business, a block away, was an, a whole neighborhood that was very economically deprived, mostly people of color. And I realized later, I didn't know it at the time, my community was segregated economically, racially, and that saddened me deeply. But I knew that more than half of the business that came into that store was from the African-American community a block away. And so I told, called Freddie on it, and he stopped up short, and he looked at me for a minute and he said, Go back to work. I'm going to move you to another aisle. You're going to be as far away from the registers as possible. Stay away from her for the rest of the day. I'll talk to her at the end of the day. And I didn't lose my job. So I was feeling pretty full of myself when I went home. And I, I, I kind of imagine I was feeling a bit like Peter at that moment. You know, kind of like, oh, I, I stood up for something right. That's what prophets are supposed to do. Maybe I was a little prophetic that day. I can't wait to tell mom and dad. And I walked in and I started telling them the story. You know what my mother said, didn't you? Not get behind me, Satan. But she said, you slapped a girl? And suddenly I realized, oh yeah, yeah, I'm not as perfect as I thought I was, was I? The reality is that being prophetic, um, doesn't have to be on a biblical proportion, but it needs to be on a faithful proportion in our lives. And I think we're all called to be prophetic. I think that the best thing the United Methodist Church can do right now in our society is be a voice of prophetic wisdom and hope and cast a vision of love for everyone in this world. You know, when it comes to the rules of church and denominations, and our lives. Jesus gave us the answer. It's not easy to live by, but he gave us the answer in the great commandment. All of what we do and all of what we say and all of what we should be about is really found in that great commandment of loving God with all we've got, heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving neighbor as self. But it's where the rubber meets the road that we find ourselves being called to humility, being called to faithfulness, being called to being prophetic witnesses. When I started to prepare for today and, and pick the title Prophet Able, uh, Profitable, um, I didn't know this congregation, but over the last three days I've gotten to know some of you and I've gotten to find out some things about this church. And of course, hearing the children's time spoke, speaks to this as well. Prophecy doesn't have to be words. It needs to be more than words. It needs to be love and action. And I can't imagine a church that uses a, a, a motto of open doors, honest worship, determined service, isn't already prophetic. And then when I arrived and 
and, and started asking the questions. And I did know this before I came, but I wasn't sure what kind of reconciling congregation this was. I realized they are already right out there as a prophetic church to this denomination. And we so desperately need it. Desperately need it. So that the harm stops. So that the love expands. So that all are welcome at God's table as we grow and learn in our faith. I was looking back over some history as well and discovered some things. I've discovered some things in recent years about John Wesley because often John Wesley's and our tradition of our faith has been used as a weapon against folk who want to have a more open, inclusive, and loving church. And just an invitation. If you ever get the chance in your online, Google John Wesley and Thomas Blair the name Thomas Blair. And what you're going to find is in 19, or 1732, John Wesley and the Holiness Club were in ministry with a gay man who was in prison in England. And he did incredible things, incredible things, including getting him out of jail eventually, and worked with him over his life. And he did with Wesley as well. What I reminded is that we come from a long tradition of love and grace, of kindness and of care, of openness and compassion and hope for others. And we're blessed. We're blessed by one another as we build those communities of faith. And thank you, because you are one of those communities of faith. I know some of you saw me standing back here. I stand in public worship. I have since 2008 because I made a commitment to myself that that was the only way I could remain in ministry in the United Methodist Church until we changed some things to make our church more open and inclusive. But when I'm in a church like this, it's not a witness, it's a thank you. And so on behalf of the United Methodist Church and what the future holds, I wanna say thank you because you're already living it. 